Hello and welcome to the Rogue Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Picard. I'm here to share stories of those in both sports and the wider working world, from those who have innovated, faced adversity, challenged the status quo, or who have approached impossible challenges and succeeded. Our shared stories aim to inspire action and stimulate different ways of thinking. The Rogue Monkey is a multi-platform podcast that will bring to life those moments that makes the impossible seem possible, the dreams to become realised and hopefully bring out the creative side in our listeners. Find our show on all the usual podcast platforms, get in touch via our website www.theroguemonkey.org or find us on social media. Just search for The Rogue Monkey Podcast. This week's episode features Liam Barnett. Whilst perhaps not a household name, Liam has been on a journey across the last 20 years that is truly inspirational. This story does have a number of ups and downs across the episode, but as you'll hear, his mindset and drive has helped him navigate some unbelievably difficult challenges and come out not just smiling, but in such a great place. It has been great getting to know more about Liam in the build-up to this episode and get a better understanding of the star of this week's show from operating table to global podium. Hello and welcome to the show, Liam. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's, um, I know you're a very busy man, so thank you for taking the time to talk to us and share your story. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be able to speak to you, Kevin. Well, for quite a few people out there won't be familiar with Liam's story, as the title of the show suggests, there's going to be some interesting points further down the line. But just to set the scene, I just want to give our listeners a bit of a background as to where you started. Uh, we know that you're in a, the sports realm, again, by the title, but it'd just be good to get a bit of a flavour as to where you started your sporting journey. My sporting journey started probably when I was about seven years old um, when I joined my first swimming club, Hemel Hempstead Swimming Club. And um, swimming is the background to my story, as you'll, as you'll find out throughout this, uh, throughout this interview, throughout ups and downs, including um, my liver transplant. That's um, it's a really interesting, I guess, aspect because probably not a lot of people come across even just members of the public who have had full transplants. So just to really share that story is going to be really, really interesting. But you started in a swimming club. And how old were you when you first joined that? I think I was about seven, like I said just then. Um, I think, um, yeah, I joined, I did all the swimming lessons that you do as a kid. And um, I don't think I was very good at many other sports. So my parents decided, well, he's not bad at swimming. So uh, got me enrolled onto um into Hemel Hempstead Swimming Club. Wonderful. So you're a Hertfordshire boy. Where are you based now? I'm based in Cambridge now. Oh, so not too far from home. No, no, no. Excellent. Well, I know, obviously, we had a little chat before going on air, but one of the things that struck me with our early conversations with how early uh, your illness actually was identified and obviously the challenges that you had in that. Yeah, so... Um... I started to get sick when I was about 12 years old. Um, I had glandular fever, which, you know, sort of exhausted me for long periods of time. And that really sort of um, didn't help my swimming. Although I, I think I did 
swim through it still. Um, but after that, I sort of had these problems. I'd, I'd get these um, real bad stomach aches, especially after eating my evening meal. And um, it took about a year to diagnose with the doctors along the way telling me that I had an eating disorder. Um, but it wasn't until about a year after I started getting these real bad stomach aches that I was diagnosed um, at King's College Hospital in London with a liver disease known as primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is where the immune system uh, attacks my body and specifically attacks my, my liver. It started to cause cirrhosis. Well, that's, um, I mean, for many people out there, especially people who have got kids, as a 13-year-old, as a how do you process that? I guess it... I guess most sort of like young kids when they get diagnosed, I can't, I can't really remember it for myself. Um, but from what I've seen around me since, um, you just sort of, as a, as a, as a young, as a child, uh, uh, um, or a young adult, you just take it in your stride. There's not really much you can do. Um, I've seen lots of kids with transplants at a very, very young age, and they're just almost sort of oblivious about it and just go about life as they would, um, any other child. Oh, that's fascinating. It's it's really hard, I guess, for anyone who's not had that um, experience or anyone in their family or friendship circle to even, I guess, comprehend being being told that at any stage in your life. But certainly as a teenager, that's it's just amazing to see how people can just, like you say, take it in their stride. Really, really fascinating. So the one thing I'd say, sorry, Kevin, is that then when you sort of get to adolescence, that's when you begin. I mean, I didn't have my transplant until later on, but um, I was told not to drink. So, um, you know, I, I was a good boy. I followed the doctor's orders. And as your friends start to get into that sort of stuff around, um, you know, their teenage years, um, you know, it sort of like set me apart. And it meant that I sort of gravitated towards a friendship group that weren't really that interested in, in drinking and, and stuff associated with that as well. Um, so I guess in that sense, it did have quite an impact on my life. Yeah, and I guess it's it's the reflective element now looking back and maybe at the time, again, as you said, you just naturally gravitated to people who weren't or had similar interests in the sense of they weren't going out partying all the time. But it's, it is really, really difficult, I think, for a lot of us to look back and think what you went through your teenage years and never had that kind of partying drink fueled lifestyle and I think maybe that's a western thing where other parts of the world maybe not so much but no it's really really cool to hear that you just kind of didn't see that as a huge hurdle or anything like that and just kind of took that in your stride like you said earlier no and I was lucky I have to say that I did fall in with um, a great group of friends both sort of um during my sort of like school years and university as well, very supportive and understanding. And I would go out with them and, and not drink and stuff. I have to say that um, I always found a great affinity with uh, fellow swimmers and still do. That's really, really, really fascinating. And I think a lot of uh, swimming audience out there, but I think anyone involved in any form of team style sport can really, regardless of what performance level they get to, really kind of have that affinity to say yeah oh, I've actually got that experience where people that I've met on that certainly the teenage years that they often become friends for life absolutely I'm still in like some of my best friends now are uh, swimmers from the various clubs that I've swam at brilliant so that you obviously had had all that through the teenage years you had GCSEs and A levels how did you navigate all of that was there lots of I guess, ups and downs with the medical intervention or was it relatively stable through that period or, or how did you get through those kind of four years? 
Well, I have to admit, Kevin, I was extremely lucky. And I can only say that in hindsight, in that I was given medication after being diagnosed. And what that did was um, it wasn't any sort of um, really hard medication. All it did was thin the bile out in my in my body and my liver, which meant that it could uh, free flow through my liver and the sort of scarred bile ducts that were um, that were in my liver from this disease. And it was really sort of like without any sort of side effects, this medication. So I was very lucky to to be able to cope with. Um, yeah, and, and do day-to-day things. And, and I did well at school. Um, I did well at GCSEs and A-levels and then went on to university. I'd then say that university in my first year, things started to deteriorate a little bit. I got introduced to steroids um, because my disease was progressing. There's a little bit more scarring of the liver. And so the doctors wanted to sort of halt that progression a little bit. That was when I sort of felt I guess, a little bit anxious about the whole disease, you know, having to take steroids because I was 18 at the time. Steroids obviously comes with a bit of a bad reputation. Um, the steroids I took and still take to this day are anti-inflammatory. And in actual fact, you get all these jokes from people, oh, you know, bodybuilding steroids. The steroids that I actually take and a lot of people take um, in their medications, uh, not just transplant patients, but um, for other sort of an anti-inflammatory reasons, um, they're actually sort of mus- muscle wastaging. So I often sort of like struggle with um, a bit of muscle loss, especially when I'm not swimming, if I'm ill for any reason. Well, there's motivation to uh, to keep exercising, but it's it's really really absolutely yeah. It's really really again difficult for more naively i guess on my part for for people who have not had any of that sort of experience we reflect back on our gcse's and a levels and think well that was a tough time and that was with uh, i guess the the luxury of a relatively normal and stable health so to then kind of have that thrown at you to navigate all of that and then go to university and it starts to slip a little bit at what point during do do you think during the university journey they were very much aware up front of it all and and supported you through those years that you were there that's right. So, like I said, I had a good friendship group who fully understood what was going on with me and my liver disease, um, but also sort of the academics at university as well. So I was studying um, engineering design at Bristol University, and um, I had uh, tutors there that really understood and cared about me effectively. Um, there were a few instances whilst I was at university where I had uh, had to be hospitalised because of um, complications to do with the liver disease. Um, I guess during my university years, that's where it started to develop a little bit in terms of like the degradation from the disease. Um, and there were instances where I actually had to be hospitalised the night before uh, one of my um, structural exams at university. And um, fortunately, I'd done really well on a lot of the other exams around that time. And so my tutor sort of stepped in and said, uh, well, I don't think we need to make Liam retake it in September. Um, he doesn't need to study all over the summer. He's been quite ill. I don't think he needs to add his dress. He's demonstrated that he can do, um, you know, all these other exams. So we'll pass him on these and he'll, he can move on to the next year. So I was really grateful for that. And that was, you know, a huge relief and glad to have the support at the time. That's really, really 
I guess wonderful to hear for for people going off to university with with any needs of support that there is that kind of flexibility within often maybe what we view externally as quite a rigid system so that's that's really positive to hear yes yeah moving on I guess not from the academic point of view but I know when we spoke before you talked about how the sport uh, and not just in swimming but your movement into water polo and how that kind of exploded at university wondered if you could just expand on that a bit so um at university i from from day one i joined the swimming team um and i had my eye on water polo as well because i thought it looked really good fun and um swimming is obviously like a team sport um but not in the sense of you know you're all in the water at the same time uh working together as a team and so it's something that's really interested me so i also joined the polo team in the first year i was pretty bad to be honest and <laughs> even by the end of my career i don't think i was that brilliant i was just a a swimmer that they could chuck the ball to and I maybe sort of like sprint past someone. Um, but I really enjoyed um, playing polo. I think I said to you in my third year, we won Bucks, the university competition, which was incredible. Um, and, and having that sort of, um, that sort of like team ethic and being part of that. Cause I, I, I played a bit of football and stuff when I was younger, but didn't really play regularly cause I wasn't very good. Um, so it was great having that, um, yeah, great having being part of a team. And it's like one of the things that I I always remember is um, I sh- I knew I should have gone swimming training in the morning, but I didn't. But I knew I absolutely couldn't miss the the training uh, for water polo. We used to do it on Wednesday mornings before for classes, and it was if I didn't go, the team couldn't do the drills. You know, so it was that sort of that that bond, that need to be there for the team, which. You, you you sort of have in swimming, but it's not as strong, I don't find. Yeah, I mean, what I'm picking up there, because there's quite a few, I guess just, I mean, even in England alone, there's close to a thousand swimming clubs. So, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of clubs that I think embody the, the team as well as they possibly can in what is effectively an individual sport. Um, and then there's maybe yeah. some clubs that don't necessarily um, play on that, that element of the sport as much, but you, you can... You can definitely bring out stories from people, and not just in swimming, but in any sports club they've been to, when they've been at a program that really does have that team approach. They they recognise it, they they celebrate it, they really make people have a great experience while they're there. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I felt at um, at Bristol in the polo team. It's great, fantastic. So graduation, we've we've ticked that one. And so far, things are, I don't want to say going swimmingly because I'll be getting lots of, uh, I'll be <laughs> love getting, it, love uh, it. yeah, I had to get the corny pun in there. Um, but so you finished university, you've gone out into the wider working world and you've got, uh, I guess, these challenges that kind of sit in, in, in backs or, or behind the scenes a little bit. So uh, at what point when you, you finished work, did you think I'm not going to have necessarily the normal working experience that a lot of newly grads straight out of university do? Well, I think um, I think within a couple of months, I realised um, at the time um, I just joined the company I still work for now, Mott McDonald in Cambridge, and um, I uh, I needed the hernia repair. So after a few weeks, so probably about well, probably about a couple of months, I had to um, go and have a, an operation on an inguinal hernia, and I thought, all right, okay, so this this is not a great start, but um, you know, needed to have this done. 
But then, um, so I joined in September 2010, and then by the time March 2011 rolled around, um, that's when things started to deteriorate in terms of my liver. And that was only a couple of months into my sort of graduate scheme at Mott McDonald. Um, I, um, I had um, what's known as spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So um, I don't know if you've ever seen sort of someone with liver disease, but in extreme cases, they can get sort of quite um, extended abdomen, um, but quite sort of usually like skinny arms and legs. It looks a little bit odd sometimes and quite distressing. Um, I wasn't like that, but what happened is my liver started to fail in such a way that it was leaking this fluid into my abdomen, which then became infected. Um, as a matter of fact, actually, I was home at my parents that weekend um, back in March 2011. And um, I'd done a swimming gala for Hemel, actually, the night before. It was something like Hearts League, which you, you may you may know about, Kevin. Oh, yes. Um, um, and I swam absolutely terribly. Um, I had already started sort of getting back into swimming after the hernia operation um, with Cambridge Masters and um, I'd sort of like said to, to Hemel, hey, do, do you want me to come and swim for you sort of thing? Um, so I was getting back into it, but I was I got cramp on a 50 metres freestyle on one of the relays, which just never usually happens. And lo and behold, the next day, sort of like my body went into meltdown. I couldn't get out of bed. I had to, had to message my dad with my mobile to say, look, I'm I'm bloody buggered here. Like I've, I, uh, I can't move out of bed. Um, so he came in and, um, yeah, I just, I couldn't basically stand up. So he called, um, called an ambulance and I went into the local hospital, which was Watford. Um, luckily, um, as you, I don't know if you know Watford general, but there wasn't a football game on that day because, um, it's on Vicarage road, the same as, uh, the football <laughs> stadium. I don't know what they do in emergencies, honestly. Um, yeah. So, um, at that point, I was uh, sort of, you know, everything was revealed, like your liver's sort of going into failure. All the results were sent to my um, main hospital, King's College Hospital London. At this time, I'd already started start joining um, and seeing people in Cambridge about my liver disease as well. So I was sort of straddling between the two hospitals. And that really marked the point at which um, my health started to deteriorate. Um, but going back to the work thing, um, work were, were fantastic about it all the time. You know, they were just always very concerned about what was going on. Um, and, uh, you know, very, um, what's the word supportive, I guess, very supportive about me taking the time off as needed. I think there's a lot to be said for, for companies and I don't want to zip off on too much of a tangent, but certainly out there in the modern day and age, I think there's that, um, there's that stereotype that newly grads and people into, the start of their careers are effectively expendable and there is very little flex given and there's a lot to be said for those companies that do value their employees and, and long-term give them that support and I'm something that um, I, I can certainly say my organisation have done for me over the last few years when I've had issues that I've had to deal with and they've been very supportive and I think that's something that you don't often see on a job spec that where they actually look after you beyond what the uh, the job requirements are. Yeah, and, and that's probably the reason why I'm at this company still almost 10 years after starting. Well, that's brilliant. So, obviously, things then spiralled downhill. Uh, I, I want to backtrack slightly. At any point on that journey since you were 13, what was it ever broached to you that you actually will need a new liver at some point? Or had that ever come up as a discussion? Or at what point, you know, when things were going downhill here, did you think, 
oh dear, we're we're reaching that point? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, when I was 13 and diagnosed with the liver disease, I don't recall there being any conversation about the need for transplant, um, possibly because I was 13 and it would have sort of freaked me out and my parents as well. I don't remember a, my, the doctors telling my parents that separately. I just think they remember a conversation when I was sort of in my early 20s and I was visiting King's College Hospital. Um, uh, I'd usually go up with, with my mum to the hospital because it was always good to have sort of two people listening to what the doctors were saying. Um, and, um, and at one of those sort of appointments, they said to me, you know, um, eventually this disease, will ne- you will need to have a transplant. And I was like, oh, okay. I think it, I think it affected my mum a lot more than it did to me. Um, but when they told me that, I thought, oh yeah, I'll, I'll need a transplant sometime in the future, you know, and I'll probably be married have kids I'll be sort of like maybe my 40s 50s at the time and you know it's a long way off I don't really need to think about it then but in actual fact little did I know that actually at that point I probably wasn't too far off actually needing transplant and um, I think research has indicated that from diagnosis of the liver disease that I have um, to needing a transplant is 10 years and I actually had my transplant 10 years after that initial diagnosis so um, yeah, I guess the sort of the regression um, of my disease wasn't really linear in that time, which I'm really, really thankful for because um, it allowed me to um, to do many things, particularly get get sort of like my education, both sort of A levels and um, and degree, and do all the things that I wanted to do at university as well, up until I joined uh, Mott McDonald. Yeah, it's excellent there for you to actually say that it's in hindsight as dire as the situation was retrospectively maybe post-grad the the possibility of that coming on when you were say 16 just about six GCSEs or 18 when you were looking at A-levels would have obviously that would have had a much more uh, well, in terms of your career that would have been a, a real change at that point. Yeah I mean I was incredibly lucky because and I've only realized this since you know in hindsight since the event really because i've met lots of people in the transplant world through the transplant games who you know throughout their sort of development years when they should be in school they've had liver diseases or kidney diseases or something which has affected their health so dramatically that for example they've needed to go to dialysis for um, uh, you know three times a week which is something that makes you very tired and isn't really very conducive to uh, good schooling. Um, so, you know, a lot of transplant patients might then um, leave school with lower grades than what they really were, you know, had the potential to achieve. And it sets them back in life. And I've realized this, like, after the event that I am so lucky to have had sort of like, you know, a good, a good bit of health for those years. Most certainly. Well, I guess we've got to that point now where we're we're on that rather sad spiral down to the point where we are going to have to have a transplant. So I know in, when we've talked previously of the the, the emotions and the, the thought processes and what you can recollect from that period, but if you can just take our listeners through that, because it's unless you like I said earlier, unless it's something that you've ever had friends or family have to deal with, it's it's harrowing, but it's also a complete eye opener. Yeah. So before I go into my story, obviously, I need to point out that my story is personal to me. And 
every person who requires a transplant will probably have similar but also different experience um and so like i said to you before i'd got to that point in march where i was hospitalized the same thing happened again in in may of 2011 um i was hospitalized this time in in addenbrooke's in cambridge was treated sent out again after about a week and then it happened again on a third time in in june 2011 and that time it was really bad that time was well the last time that i was um i guess sort of like sick with with liver failure so um i remember it was one weekend and it was uh you know it was always sort of like these festivals and events in Cambridge. And I was supposed to go out with some friends to go to one of these, um, one of these such events. And, um, I, uh, I felt like I had a cold. So I just laid in bed the whole weekend. And by the time Monday rolled around, I, um, I, uh, I thought, Oh, this cold isn't shifting. I'm feeling even worse. So I, um, I called up the doctors, made an appointment and took myself there, albeit sort of a bit, you know, a bit sick and a bit, you know, I had to walk there and, um, yeah, a bit slowly making my way there. And when I got to the doctor, the first thing she said to me was, so how long have you been jaundiced for? And I was like, what? And uh, she said to me, yeah, take a look in this mirror here. And so I looked in the mirror. So I've been in bed all weekend and I basically hadn't looked at myself in the mirror. And um, shockingly, like the whites of my eyes were yellow and my skin had gone yellow. And I think I was wearing a white T-shirt that day. So it made it look a lot worse. But um, what, yeah, what, and... what goes through your head when you actually see that? Because that sounds like something out of a, you know, a documentary on TV or a, 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 almost like a, a TV show, effectively. Yeah, I I think I was just shocked. You, when you see yourself in the mirror looking back, and you, you sort of don't recognise the person, and it's only been a course of a weekend, you know, um, just shocked, and also just a little bit, I guess. Um, what's the word um a little bit anxious because you know i'm i'd followed my liver disease i've I've always found that you've got to be invested sort of intellectually you've got to know what's going on you've got to know what the permutations are of having a disease like this and so i'd found out i'd done my research and i knew and i remember the doctor saying you know if you go jaundice that's a big deal that's sort of the beginning of the end and i was like oh like here i am jaundice looking at myself in the mirror and um yeah without sort of um well it, it, the the doctor um the doctor sent me off to Addenbrookes there afterwards and i think i was there for about for about a month um so at that point uh my liver had gone into failure and i was actually too sick to have transplant so i was admitted into hospital later that day um it was all fairly casual it's like you know make your way down to Addenbrooke, sort of like they didn't get an ambulance it wasn't an emergency so make your way down to Addenbrooke's maybe maybe pack a bag as well sort of thing so I went home packed a bag went down to Addenbrooke's um and um sort of checked in and that was it then um, they said you know we're gonna do while you're here we're gonna hook you up to some IV antibiotics to fight this infection that you've got um you need to get better at the same time we're gonna do your assessment to check if you can have, you know, if essentially, Kevin, they, they check to see if you can survive the transplant. And that's not just from a physical point of view, you know, have you got the um, respiratory system and circulate, circulation system that can um, can deal with this major event? 
um, but also the mental assessment as well. Like, can you deal with the fact that you're, your body is failing and you need to have um, a new organ? In this case, most likely from a deceased donor as well. So they do all this assessment. And um, at the same time, they sort of made it clear to me, they were like, yeah, but you need to get better because at the moment you're too sick. Um, and we can't afford you to have another one of these infections because that might be it then. You know, that might be the, um, uh, we might not be able to to give you that transplant. You'll be too sick to do it. This is, I um, guess, this is quite a downward spiral in a, in a relatively short space of time. And I think something, yes, yes. it obviously depends on your, your biology knowledge for our listeners out there, but they don't do dialysis for a liver so you're effectively on a that's right yeah you're you're on a clock in this situation and it's not a clock of oh we've got another option or this and that once your liver's gone your liver's gone so uh, how not not how in do you process information like that but at what point from oh we're going to go for a stroll up to adam brooks with our day bag and we might be in for a couple of days did you think (laughs) oh wow we're, we're really in um we're in trouble here Yes. Um, those, yeah, it did go through my mind. Um, I'm in trouble here. Um, but I tell you what, though, um, throughout all this process, even as we go on to the sort of the transplant itself, like I was sort of quietly confident. Um, I, I don't know what it was. Maybe it's the sort of the competitiveness inside of me and what have you. But I was always like, I never thought, you know, this is it. You know, even though at, at points it was very, you know, touch and go. And, it, you know, I was close to not being here at all, close to dying. At the time, I always I look back and I think I was, you know, quietly confident that not of sort of my own ability to deal with things, but quietly confident that things would work out. And, you know, they did very luckily work out that I had um, had the transplant in time, effectively. I think it's. If you look back across certainly the years I've been involved in coaching, we always tell parents of young athletes in, in any sport really that, you know, the, the life lessons you learn from sport, you know, take the knockbacks and keep on plowing on and positive mindset yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I yeah. never have had that conversation quite envisaging that it, it would lead to a, a situation like you find yourself in. But yeah, it's, um, yeah. it is very positive to hear that some of the the attributes that may have been imparted to you through your sporting experiences have actually ended up contributing to saving your life absolutely that was my biggest competition ever by that point you know took my biggest goal my biggest challenge was was to survive and um i certainly think that the swimming background that i had and the water polo for a brief period as well equipped me to deal with that i really do Excellent. So we've got to the tipping point now of the operation. So if you just want to really take us through that that little bit of a lead up, because you said you're effectively on a waiting list, and that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I was um, I was in hospital for that month period in in June, and um, you know I was I was practically living in the hospital at that point, and so it wasn't a particularly pleasant war to live on as well um, because there were um, lots of other patients in there, no disrespect to them, but sometimes, um, I mean, there was a lot of sort of alcoholic and drug users on there. I mean, some of the, some of the patients on the same ward of me were actually from prison as well. So they had sort of like um, police escorts with them at all times as well. 
unfortunately, you know, liver disease can lead to sort of like confusion. So you end up with a lot of guys on the wards just screaming the whole time. So um, quite often when my um, parents would come to visit, they'd take me back to my flat and I'd just chill out there for a bit during the day with them. And, and the hospital staff were, were okay with that. And I remember one night I came back late. I sort of came back about eight o'clock at night and I just had this mac spaghetti bolognese that my uh, mum had made me. And um, I remember sort of walking down the corridor to get back to my bed and my um, the nurse sort of like followed behind me. And I was like, well, because normally at that time of night, sort of things have quietened down a little bit. But the nurse was following me and I was thinking, oh dear, she's maybe she's a bit annoyed with me because I've come back late or whatever. She's going to give me a bit of a telling off. <laughs> so when I, when I got back to my bed, she uh, she came up to me and she said, oh, we need to get you ready. Um, we need to get you sort of like go and have a shower, go and use the sort of um, the scrub that they give you and that. And I was like, I don't have any um, more assessments or tests um, today. It's too late for that. And she said, no, no, you've got, um, they found a donor for you. You're going to have your transplant. And I, I have to add that I'd only signed to be on the waiting list that morning, morning of that day. And I just didn't expect it to be that fast because what they do is when you go onto the waiting list, they tell you sort of like, oh, it's, you know, it could be anywhere up to sort of like three to six months and that. Although what I didn't realize at the time is that they just, they, for me anyway, I think they were just saying that and they, they realistically knew that I needed a, a liver transplant very quickly. Like you say, there was no safety net like there are with um, other types of transplant. So anyway, I was shocked because um, I, you know, this was a big thing. I was about to go into the operating theater for potentially sort of like, what, seven, eight hours and and have this transplant. I mean, all the preparation you can do, they give you literature, they give you people come around and talk to you about their own experience of liver transplant. Nothing prepares you for when they actually say, right, you're having your transplant. My mum had just, um, well, my parents had just gone back to um, back to Hemel, so they were on the road, so I couldn't contact them. This is back in 2011 as well, where, you know, not everyone was glued to their phones that they are now. So I tried ringing round and... Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I wanted them to be there, obviously. Um, so I went, had a shower. They took a ton of blood, um, blood tests, and that. Um, I got back to the bed, I think, after the shower, and the nurse was like, um, "Okay, okay, need to stand you down because they found out that the that the liver for the uh, for the deceased donor is isn't good enough for transplanting." And I was like, "Oh my god!" And then sort of like. Half an hour later, got all these sort of like texts and phone calls coming back for where that they've missed the course and that saying, "Oh, what do we do? What do we do?" And I said, "No, it's okay. Like stand down, stand you down. Know, it's stand down, stand down." But then I remember like going to sleep that night, and you know, my parents obviously offered to come back up and 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 sort of like be with me. But I was like, "No, it's fine." But I remember going to bed that night thinking, "This is going to happen soon." Right. Like, it could happen again tonight. I could be woken up during the night to say that this happened, that, you know, to be activated again. And um, as it happened, it didn't. It didn't happen for another week. What they probably a day or so later, they actually sent me home because um, um, you know they given me the antibiotics. I was better. They said to me, "Look, it's better for you to be in your home environment right now." And I said to them, I don't think so. I want to be here. I want to be in a hospital. I want to be under your noses um, so that, you know, you know, you know, I'm still here. and I need this transplant. And they said, no, 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 it's OK. We know that you're here. Um, and um, yeah, a week later, 
I remember getting the phone call. It, uh, it's sort of like back in the day when, you know, we had a landline. <laughs> I remember it ringing and, and then it stopped ringing. I think because my parents had picked it up because they had the, the phone from that point on. They had the sort of like the cordless phone next to their bedside sort of thing, you know, because it was they knew that, well, quite often these things you get the call like, during the middle of the night. Um, and um, so I sort of woke up thinking, I wonder wonder what that phone call was and uh so sort of like was laying in bed for five minutes or so just sort of like staring at the ceiling thinking about what that phone call might have been at probably about three or four o'clock in the morning um because it might have been one of my brothers sort of asking for a lift you know on a night out or something like that <laughs> someone um, sticks their head anyway, around the door and says do you want anything yeah. from the chip shop <laughs> i um i crept upstairs and said who was that then and they were like yeah that was the phone call and I was like, why didn't you tell me? Um, and they were like, they said not to rush, to sort of like wait a bit and come in when it gets light because they were like, I want you to make sure that you drive in safely because we don't want you to have an accident on the way or anything <laughs> like that. So I remember they're just sitting there sort of like eating a, eating a big bowl of cereal because at this time my liver was going into failure and I was hungry all of the time it was unbelievable I mean I eat a lot now as you probably do as well Kevin it's sort of like the swimmer's curse you know probably one of the reasons why we still swim in fact so that we can get away of eating the amount that we do oh yes um <laughs> and um yeah I just at this time I was eating loads and I had this massive bowl of cereal and I was just thinking I'm probably not going to be able to eat food for a few days here um i know it's probably not the, the thing the thing that sort of like should be in in um carb loading in, effectively like first thing yeah <laughs> um but yeah and that was one of the reasons another thing to do with food why i was so sort of like anxious when that nurse came down and sort of called me a week before like when i was in hospital by my bed i thought i can't have a transplant now i've just had a belly i've got a belly full of bolognese there's no way you can operate on me yeah you can't waste um, a good meal that's it yeah yeah um but no, once I got to Addenbrooke, that's that's when the sort of it really kicked in. And that drive up up to Addenbrooke was about an hour from Hemel, where I was staying with my parents to to Addenbrooke. It was um, it was surreal. And every time I drive that route now between Hemel and um, and Cambridge, it always takes me back to to the time where sort of I was driving up. At the time, my mum drove me in the morning, and my, the rest of my family, my brothers and my dad, were going to join later because they explained that it wouldn't happen for hours yet. They got a prep everything they had to prep me as well i had to fast i had to have blood i had to talk to anesthetists this that and the other once i got to hospital that was when all the emotions kicked in and it was an absolute cocktail of emotions as well i have to say because you're obviously scared because you're about to have an operation which is very dangerous um sort of i guess excited as well because your life's about to change but also there's a bit of a buzz from the nurses and that on, on the ward as well, because they are, you know, this is a major thing for them to do a transplant. They do, you know, probably quite a few of them per week, but you know, this is, you know, something quite exciting for them. Um, but also sort of thinking, well, hang on a second. What about my donor here? And thinking a bit of sort of a bit guilty, a bit remorseful at the same time, thinking someone, someone's just passed away here. Like, in order to give me this gift gift of life, this second chance. So it's um you've got all of these very different emotions just running through your veins at the same time. And it's really yeah, it's quite it's quite um it's quite special and it's quite hard to sort of describe and to deal with at the same time. 
Yeah, and I'm sure, and obviously with something that serious, you're going to have quite a lot of, I guess, rehabilitation and recovery afterwards where you've got plenty of time where you're told, sit there and do nothing and you, your brain can go That's over right. all these yeah. sorts of things and like a loop. Yeah, um, that's actually a very good point. Um, all of this, as you as you can hopefully um, gauge from my from my story, like it all happened very fast. My deterioration from March to June, and then the actual transplant itself, and and getting me to the hospital, happened really fast. It was really hard to sort of, you know, stop and actually think about it, like the implications of it. And I'll always remember sort of. Um, Eventually, when I had my transplant and I left the hospital, I was in hospital for about a month after the transplant itself because I had various surgeries, had to go back in. And, it, you know, it's specific to me. It's not the same for every liver transplant recipient, but there were a few complications I had to deal with. Um, but I remember when I left the hospital, eventually, I did. First of all, I didn't feel ready to leave i thought you know i need to be here i need them to like look after me i've got sort of like staples holding my abdomen together i'd lost a ton of weight i was down to about 50 kilograms as a skeleton basically and um they said to me look i think it's time you know you recovered well enough to go home now you need to and it's true once you go home you recover much better in your own environment away from all the beeping machines and constant interruptions from nurses and stuff like that and they get you back up into hospital anyway to check on you every week make sure things are okay but i remember leaving that hospital and um as soon as i sort of like stepped out of that ward i just burst into tears because i think that was the point at which i just it just caught up on me i just it i just realized at that point I've just had a liver transplant. I've, I've just had a liver transplant. Yeah, what a roller coaster. And it's, I think as well, in, in those sorts of situations like you talked about where it's time sensitive and it's quite compressed, you almost go into autopilot of, well, what do I need to do next? Well, you need to scrub up. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, what do I need to do next? And there's all my, it's completely process-driven with well, you're almost yeah. blocking out yeah. everything else. Exactly, exactly that, yeah. Okay, so obviously it was successful. Uh, you you were in hospital for a month. You, you're now back home. You, did you get flooded by friends who were all coming round to check you were okay? <laughs> yeah, and and even while I was in hospital as well, actually, a lot of friends wanted to come and visit friends and family. And um, I'll be honest, um, quite a lot of the time, I, I sort of resisted a little bit. Um, a little bit because you don't want your friends and family to see you in that way. Like I said, I lost a lot of weight. I wasn't in a good in a good way necessarily. But also because I was falling asleep constantly. Like the body just wants to recover from that sort of surgery. And so, um, yeah. Didn't, I was didn't, want, didn't want your friends taking it personally when they, you nodded off yeah, exactly. mid-conversation. No, because that'd be it. They'd be round, you know, at bedside or even come round to like, so I went back to my parents' home to come and to come and see how I was. And it was really nice and touching to have so much support but after sort of 30 minutes of having a conversation with someone I'd be knackered honestly I'd be absolutely knackered and that would be sort of sat down lying down I was you know that there was that much energy going into my recovery by my body that just a conversation would tire me out I didn't want to seem rude and sort of like fall asleep on them and stuff and of course I was on a lot of pain medication as well particularly in hospital which meant I was coming out of a load of rubbish as well most of the time <laughs> that, that was the excuse for it was it 
That was the excuse, yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're back home. We're on the road to recovery. Um, at what point, yes. so I'm guessing this is about end of July time, early August, something like that? Yes, correct, correct. When are you back to work? I'm not I'm not pushing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I um, it took me six months to get back to work. Um, there was a lot of recovery required. Um, like I say, I slept a lot, adjusting to the medication, going back for regular checkups, um, coming off of pain medication after being cut open and, and sealed back up about three times as well. Um, yeah, it wasn't until, so I left hospital August, basically the first day of August. And then I went back to work uh, with Mott McDonald again in January, 2012. So about six months out. Um, and, um, I had a phase return to work. So I would say that for the next six, for the first six months I returned, it was, um, very much, um, sort of like half days and sort of gradually building back up. And everyone was fully supportive of that. It was brilliant. And then, you know, I would say that it took me a, a year after transplant to fully recover. Um, and um, in terms of swimming, I uh, I pushed it a little bit. They told me six months um, after my transplant before going back in the pool. So obviously I was back in the pool after five months. Um, <laughs> and um, that was a weird sensation as well, I have to say, um, because I remember going back doing a couple of morning sessions with um, with Hemel, actually. And um, I felt so vulnerable. I felt so skinny when I walked onto poolside. And um, I remember sort of like diving in and the muscle memory was there. So my body knew how to move and do the actions, but there was no muscle there. And so it sort of just didn't really do anything like or didn't sort of propel myself through the water like I had done before. It was sort of like um, the, the analogy that I use is sort of like it was like a a rowing oar that without the paddle on the end, it was just the stick. And those were my arms basically trying to, uh, yeah, trying to work their way through water. Uh, it was, yeah. You know, when you do sort of like pool sets and it feels like you've got spaghetti arms and brick hands. One of my, uh, <laughs> one of my swimming, swimming friends calls it. It felt, it felt like that, but just from the, from the get go. Um, so when I went back to work, I stopped swimming for a bit because I just focused all my energy and just getting back into work. And then I think I picked it up again in about April time of 2012. And the reason being because I had the, uh, the British transplant games that I had set my sights on, which were at the, at the end of July, beginning of August. Oh no, sorry. They're at the end of August. So I had that time to sort of, um, I did a few public sessions and then I ended up coming back to uh, city of Cambridge masters where I remember turning back, turning up at, um, on poolside and some of the some of the guys sort of vaguely recognized me from when I trained there for a little bit before so I think I recognize this guy but he's about 20 kilos like lighter than he was before like he's a skeleton now I remember it was sort of like a little bit sort of um it was a great moment to get back into the club sort of like a, a, a landmark moment for me to go back soon with a club but also sort of like realized another sort of moment where I realized really what had happened to me by their sort of reactions at me sort of turning, turning up with this massive scar and basically uh, stick arms and legs. Well, it's brilliant to be back in the water. And I, I'm, I guess that's where the, the back half of the title for this conversation comes about of the journey from that first step back into the pool down at Hemel morning session through to yeah. what, what happened at the, the end of August. 
so the end of August, um, that was, like I said, the, uh, the first, first of my British transplant games. And it was amazing that year because it was the London Olympics. So there was a real sort of great vibe about the UK at the time. You'll probably remember. Um, and, um, I was really excited because I had these British games, that, you know, I kind of kind of, uh, coined as my Olympics, you know what I mean? Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think I did better than I expected. I think I I can tell you my times, actually. I think I went a, um, bearing in mind that, you know, I just got back in the pool for a, for a couple of months. I went a 25-8, I think it was, on the 50 freestyle and a 57, maybe 57 low on the 100 freestyle. I did some other events as well. I can't, I don't remember their times, um, but I I entered four events and I got four goals and um, Not sort of... Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't. I really didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know how the standard of the other swimmers would be as well. And um, it was brilliant because uh, like my whole family was there. One of my one of my good friends from uni as well turned up and and watched. And it was a real sort of like another landmark moment really. And um, the GB transplant swimming coach was there, and we had a chat afterwards because obviously I'd done, um, you know, sort of sweat came in and swept up like a hurricane really these uh these medals and um yeah she said you know you're you're a shoe in for being in the gb team next year we're going to the world games in um in durban south africa and you said no thank you i, I don't like traveling and uh, i'd rather stay <laughs> in the rainy midlands <laughs> <laughs> that's not what i said at all no <laughs> So what happened at, at that point? Because obviously, I guess the goal when you, you come off a, a life-altering situation like that is to just get well again. And then, yes. like you said, you'd, you'd had it in the back of your mind that at the end of August, we were potentially going to go and do this. And again, this kind of squeezing of time where suddenly in the space of four months, not only are you back in the pool, you're entertaining the opportunity of flying halfway around the world for a major competition. Yeah, yeah. I, I will admit to you, Kevin, that during my transplant i knew about the transplant games and that was an incentive for me even then you know even while i was in hospital strapped up to machines and and having you know going in for surgeries and stuff that was in the back of my mind um and so i mean maybe maybe that was one of the reasons that just kept me going to get better quicker you know i wanted to get back in the pool i wanted to go to the british games i wanted to qualify for that world games the year after i mean certainly sort of after i passed all that very sort of um dangerous and unknown period of of the transplant itself that was a real incentive for me to get better and i think it's great honestly i I really advocate having having those sort of like sporting goals or even just goals in any walk of life really ahead of you just something to keep you moving keep you progressing to the next you know to the next point and then what's the next thing I think when you when you see it's more so maybe the news with these kind of charity events, people often take up maybe sports or activities that they've never looked at doing before. And I was listening to a really interesting podcast the other day, Supporting Champions, and they had one of the, the founding members of Park Run and was talking about how many people have taken up the activity. And it it's having that thing that spurs you on. And obviously it's quite a unique situation for you, but to, to have something that not just gets you through the the tough times of the the challenges you were facing, but actually you're going to propel you to something that you'd have never even really dreamed about maybe two or three years beforehand. Yeah, 
absolutely. And the prospect of being able to go to the world games, be a world champion, set world records for me was, I mean, it was like, um, you know, sort of like a, a boyhood dream to be in the Olympics, which I soon realized, you know, it wasn't good enough at swimming to do that, but it was an amazing incentive and a, an amazing opportunity. And, and I go on to sort of like to say that, um, it's amazing to be able to do that among other people who've had transplant as well and hearing their stories and learning sort of like, yeah, everyone's, everyone's got an amazing story about survival and, and, and transplant. Um, so yeah, um, I, I just feel so lucky sort of like both pre and post transplant in terms of, like I said before, pre transplant, um, being lucky with how my health deteriorated in the in the timely manner that it did post-transplant that I've had these amazing opportunities given to me um you know representing my country in swimming a sport I love um because I've had a transplant it's incredible I'm so lucky so I know the answer to this but I'm excited to share it so you you get your arm twisted and get dragged on a plane all the way down to South Africa and you arrive and you dive in and do some swimming i did yeah 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 so um i'd been i sort of set myself up um for, for some big goals during that meet i looked at the previous sort of times from other world games i looked at um the world records as well and um i don't know if i made it public at the time but certainly it was my it was my intention to um to basically win all golds and uh, to set world records in doing so, and um, and and uh, over the two-day swimming competition, that that's you know I accomplished what I set out to do. I won seven golds and set seven world records. So it was okay the the first event then. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And South Africa wasn't bad afterwards. You know, nice little holiday <laughs> what i think is interesting more from a swimming point of view knowing many people have competed on international teams and i guess the variety of places you end up so you you've had your first experience being south africa can you share yeah. the the follow-up venues for the the championships you've been to since yes yeah, so um south africa was 2013 durban brilliant place so i'm in the same pool that um the likes of Chad Leclo, uh, you know, of Grace previous. So, um, although it was a bit of a dump, actually, there was like pigeons flying around. <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> Crystal Palace now. It sounds like Crystal Palace, yeah. Um, and uh, then two years after that, uh, Mar del Plata, Argentina. Um, it's getting, two years it's after getting that, better. It's getting better. Oh, yeah. It was in the winter, though. It was in the winter. <laughs> their winter, I should say. Um, and then uh, two years after that, so 2017 was Malaga, Spain, which was you know, pretty good, pretty good. Yeah. And then most recently, uh, last summer, 2019, was Newcastle Gateshead. Newcastle. Which, Newcastle Gates, which we swam in the pool in Sunderland. Um, yeah. I have to admit that I loved the games in Newcastle Gateshead. Um, I thought it was a terrific venue for the games to be held, be, you know, um, it was uh, the people there are so friendly. They've got some great facilities up there as well, um, and um, and yeah, it's easy to get about with the metro and stuff like that. It was honestly, I think everyone everyone from around the world had a great time at those games. I, I could think of probably no place better for um, 
the World Transplant Games, actually. I mean, obviously, somewhere like London would be brilliant, but that's, you know, that's very sort of expansive, whereas Newcastle, sort of everything was quite close to each other, all these venues. It was a brilliant place, brilliant place to have the, have the games. Well, it sounds like you had a fantastic experience there. And there was, uh, I know from our previous discussions, an overlap. So although you're coming at this from an athlete point of view, at what point did this start to transition into the roles that you're now undertaking? So um, after Durban, uh, the coach at the time stepped down and one of, like, well, she was the assistant coach at the time, Janet, her name, um, she's from Northern Ireland and she, she sort of like took the helm. She'd done a bit of swimming herself, but she was more of a running background. Um, you'll find with the transplant games that you do get some people who sort of like maybe cross-discipline sports and that and you get people like me who are just completely focused on on swimming so janet took the helm and she wanted me to sort of like help her out really because she um she didn't have the sort of swimming background experience the lifelong experience that i had so myself and a fellow master swimmer uh who swims at guildford city jody cox we sort of um helped out and I brought along one of my mates as well as a coach because he's. Um, I really enjoyed his coaching sessions at City of Cambridge. Jeremy Latham. He's now down at um, at Bude Sharks. Um, um, down in Devon. Down in uh, Cornwall. It's down in Cornwall. Oh, okay. Well, and, a long um, way away. <laughs> a lot. A very long way away. And um, he was great for the team. So we had this um, after that. After the games in South Africa, we had a sort of weekend training camp um, in November in Northern Ireland because that's where Janet was from. She organised everything. It was a brilliant weekend. Jeremy came along and sort of was the perfect match for sort of the transplant team that we have because you see the GB transplant team or the transplant mix um, swimmers in general, a real mixed bag of all ages, a bit like master swimming. Sort of you've got, you've got swimmers of all ages uh, from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, some of them who don't have clubs a lot of them do have masters clubs and that's increased over the time that sort of I've been at the, at this sort of like managing the team. Um, but yeah, from all walks of life, from all backgrounds. And um, so you need someone who is, you know, adaptable and versatile in their sort of style of coaching. Someone who can coach someone like me, who's very focused on sort of like performance and training, you know, and someone else who's there just to sort of swim and occasionally sort of like go to these games and that as well you know someone who swims in public swim fit sessions and this that and the other so yeah Jeremy was the perfect fit um but then unfortunately really quite tragically Janet um Janet developed skin cancer and and she died before the games in uh, in Argentina uh, which which was you know really really very tragic and that is um something that transplant patients sort of have to have to deal with quite often actually is that our peers uh, often sort of you know do get illnesses that they don't recover from and do pass away and in her case and which is quite common she she, she had skin cancer um, because our immune systems are suppressed it's um, sometimes they don't keep in check mutations from UV rays and stuff and uh, we do have to have regular checkups on skin cancer we're supposed to wear sun cream the whole time but yeah, unfortunately and, and really sadly, um, Janet passed away. And that meant that the sort of the the team was leaderless. So I I sort of Jody, myself and Jeremy took the helm, I guess sort of me being the manager of the team and sorting out all the administrative stuff. And then when we went and we met together for training meets and the run up to Argentina, um, 
know, Jody would support me, but Jeremy would take the coaching sessions. And, and that's been the way now for the games at Argentina and uh, Malaga and Newcastle as well. The three of us leading the team that way. So it's, and I'm, I guess I'm trying to compress this a little bit, but in the space of eight years, we've gone from, <clears throat> at the start of the year, the odd illness that keeps checking us into into hospital through to build up the transplant, transplant recovery, three world, cha- yeah. three world, cha- four world championships, uh, as yeah. well as well as taking on a, a team support role, and uh, it, it's incredible. But it's also at, at what point have you had any moments where you look back and went, "Whoa, how, you're just blown away by how how far you've come in such a." what is such a difficult situation and I'm sure many people who have not necessarily from the sporty backgrounds who maybe have just had a transplant maybe haven't had such a um, a mountainous journey afterwards from from bouncing back and recovering being just about enough and actually going no yeah. I'm, I'm going to carry on climbing up more hills yeah no I think um I think that's just I guess that's just the way I am um and i think it's it's also sort of evolved along the way you know it's never it's never been like a massive pile on of of work and responsibility it's always sort of developed in layers and in my job as well whilst all through this you know getting responsibilities and and even up to sort of recently when i became chartered civil engineer as well you know it's just adding that that layer each time rather than sort of plonking it all at one time and you know i have to say as well that i do get a lot of help from the likes of jeremy and jody as well so it's, it's a real sort of team effort in in leading the transplant swimming team to development and i think we've done a great job over the years in professionalizing the team encouraging swimmers to join clubs to join masters clubs and to swim more and just to generally sort of um yeah just um I think we've seen that in the results of the World Transplant Games as well in the last few editions, just how many medals the GB team wins compared to other nations. We are an absolute dominant force in the pool. And I'd like to think it's partly down to to Jeremy Jody and I for for sort of spearheading that movement. Well, absolute kudos to you because I'm sure there's um, a lot of people out there who would, as I say, take the the getting over the the speed hump of a, of a transplant and going you know what that I, i'm just gonna put my feet up and re- recover and and settle at that so to to be driving the sport forwards for not just yourself and, and the team amongst you but obviously the next generation that's coming through and spreading that awareness and that's something hopefully today's story will do is actually make people aware this sorts of thing is out there and i think when we first spoke you know, I was just trying to figure out really how can we get this story as far and wide as possible because it's something that I, I'm certainly in my swimming world. I've been involved in the sport for more than 20 years and I've never come across a transplant athlete before. And yet it's an area in the modern world. You know, I'm on the organ donor register like I'm sure a lot of people are. And if you're not, please make sure you get yourself signed up to it. But it's it's an area that we're almost blindsided to in the sports world because it's something that I just don't think gets as much publicity as it should. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different groups, aren't there, out there sort of vying for the limelight and no disrespect or sort of bringing down of others. But obviously, sort of like the Paralympics are held in quite high regard and absolutely, like, in fairness, that should be the case. I guess the transplant world needs to sort of have a look at itself and think about where its place fits into that as well. 
Um, you, you have also things like the um, Invictus Games as well for um, servicemen with, um, uh, I guess, sort of like um, with ampu- who are amputees now and are competing. So I think you've, you, as, a, as an organization, the World Transplant Games really needs to sort of like see its niche and understand how it fits in amongst all of that. Well, that's something the one, the, I was going to say. That is something that I know a lot of swimming coaches have already talked to me about this podcast. So, if there's anything any of our coaches can do to to spread the word, then please make sure after the show we reach out and share that information. Yes, please. Um, something you, you talked there a little bit about looking forward. So, and, and looking forwards as an organisation, what, what's next for you? Well, obviously, it's the next World Transplant Games. They're every two years, and uh, we're going a bit further away for the next one. Um, in May 2021, it will be um, Houston, Texas. Wow. But before – uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. As long as I can get sort of like uh, health insurance to go abroad, that is a big issue for going for transplant patients and it will be for these games because it's very expensive premium to go somewhere like the States. Not so bad if you go to Europe and places like that, but going to the States would be an absolute nightmare, especially if any of us transplant patients have had uh, recent hospitalizations as well. So you've, um, you've started saving already then? Yes. Yeah, just for the just for the uh, insurance. <laughs> um more short term, I'm looking at well, I think I spoke to you on the phone. I um before this uh i want to i'm an avid master swimmer with um, the city of cambridge masters i'm going to try and have a pop at getting into the olympic trials but i I think that might be a bit beyond me um especially because i've had a little bit of recent illness as well which you know is um, part and parcel of really being a transplant athlete at this time of year is getting over the hurdles of viruses and illnesses. Um, beyond that, it will be National Masters Long Course in Sheffield. Um, picking up a few medals there would be uh, would be my aim. And then after that, European Masters in Budapest as well, uh, which I will see you there hopefully, Kevin. Yep, and there's, a, there's a, a group of us that seems to be growing ever bigger by the day of people coming along to that because Budapest, like you say, and your experience when you were up in Northumberland and actually we had a similar experience a few years ago at the World Masters where that was just a stunning experience and I know yeah. that the um the guy I interviewed for our first episode at My Swim Pro Ferez, he um that was where I met him and that was again one of these moments where you came away and looked back and think, Wow, that was a chance meeting. That wouldn't have happened if I hadn't yeah. been there for a swimming competition. Yeah, you just gotta to go to these things and just chat to everyone, haven't you? See yeah. see uh, you you sort of un, un cover these gems really um but one of the other things as well is as well as my own swimming um one of the other things that i'm looking forward to in the next sort of period is building up the reputation the visibility of um the, the swimming club that i established called transplant sport swimming club which is um affiliated to swimming england hopefully some of the listeners may have seen us at some events i think last year we entered south south staffordshire masters and um the norfolk masters at norwich in may time um you may have seen a few others um the idea really we've got these pink hats pink t-shirts about organ donation 
the idea is to set up a team for well there's there's multiple reasons why why um why I and others in the committee did it um first of all to act as a platform for promotion so uh, you know you'll be looking through the swimming program and you'll see oh transplant sports swimming club i wonder what this club's all about and then you start maybe you see someone wearing that t-shirt and poolside and you have a chat to them and and that's a way of spreading organ donation promotion from the poolside um which is you know a place you know that's my natural habitat and, and a lot of others on the team as well um the second reason is to give some of our team members a club to join so that they can go and race more a lot of our members some of the sort of slightly older members of the team um train like i say in swim fit classes or maybe sort of triathlon groups who aren't necessarily affiliated to swim england instead um they can go and train in these groups or do their own training and um then enter events under transplant sport and it gives them the chance to race practice racing which i'm always telling the guys in the team to do Make your mistakes on races that don't count, not the ones that do. You know, um, keep on uh, keep on entering events, and it's fun, and it helps to organ- it helps to spread the idea of um, organ donation and transplantation too. So, that is another thing I want to push. I want to get more members signed up. I want us to make sure that we're going to more meets and we have a bit more visibility, so that uh, we spread the word through our swimming. Well, when I do the little post show that I put together after each episode, I'll make sure we include every single link and platform we can to share that word. And I'll make sure when the episode goes live as well, we make sure we get that all over social media because it really is a a fascinating area that I'm sure a lot of people have learned a lot more about today. But by the sounds of it, something that's only going to get bigger and brighter going forwards. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. As long as that doesn't mean, well, I mean, it's sort of double edged sword. I said this to you before. Yeah. As long as it doesn't mean more people are needing transplant, as more as long as more people who need it are getting transplants, that's fantastic. But yeah, well, that's what I, I don't know. It's just a, a weird way to look at it. Well, that's what we're hoping for, and I say we'll certainly be banging the drum and sharing the message of the work you guys are doing. Liam, thank, thank you. you, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a roller coaster, quite literally. But I'm sure many people out there will probably have some questions, so we'll make sure we do some some interactive stuff on social media for you afterwards. But again, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at some point over the coming months. I'll see you on a poolside soon, I'm sure, Kevin. Thank you very much. <laughs> see you soon. Thank you very much for the interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, what an insightful journey that was. I hope you all took something away from that amazing journey Liam has shared with us. It was most certainly a story of resilience, having a positive mindset and taking opportunities, all of which are skills developed through being a participant in sport. As promised, we've got some links for anyone who wants to know more about Transplant Sport in the UK. For the swimmers out there on Twitter, it's at Transplant Swim. For Instagram, it's Transplant underscore Swimmers. And on Facebook, it's Transplant Sport Swimming UK. If you want to find out more about this year's Transplant Games, head to www britishtransplantgames.co.uk They'll be taking place in Coventry from the 30th of July through to the 2nd of August in the summer. Finally, if you want to know more about the wider activities available for transplant athletes, head to transplantsport.org.uk That's it for this week and we're excited to share next week's episode where we will delve into one of the counterculture sports making inroads into the Olympic movement as we speak to one of the directors from England Skateboarding. <laughs>